0: Hey everybody, it's Erin Carey and welcome back to Sparking Wholeness. Today, I am doing something a little bit different. I am going to be doing a solo episode. It's just me talking. Sorry to disappoint you, but I am going to be speaking on the subject of adolescent depression. And the reason that I feel so passionate about this topic is that a recent report from the CDC showed that three out of five teen girls shared they experienced persistent feelings of hopelessness in 2021. While this statistic is absolutely staggering, I can listen without batting an eye. And one of those reasons is that I was one of the three. I was that girl. I was that teenage girl lost in the dark hole of depression, trying to do all the things right, trying to pray it away and just falling short. I couldn't make it out of the pit. So I'm very passionate about this. The other reason that I'm so passionate about this topic is that I believe there are so many things contributing to adolescent hopelessness. And while there are differences between the world of today and the world when I was diagnosed, absolutely, (laughs) the 90s was a different time, right? The treatment options have not changed. The treatment options available in the 1990s are the same being offered today, 30 years later, medication and therapy. Guys, that fires me up. That really frustrates me because these limited options are not treating the root of the issue. And in some cases, they might be making things worse. I know this is a heavy topic and it's very close to my heart. And I am a passionate person and I do get fired up about things, especially when I feel like there is injustice occurring. And I do believe that there is injustice occurring for our teen girls and boys, but uh, I'm basing this mostly on that report from the CDC talking about teen girls suffering. And when there is injustice, I have to speak out. I can't not. So I've created a list of contributing root causes to my depression, it's a list of seven things that contributed to my depression that I experienced when I was a teen. And I'm hoping that it will help someone take a closer look at the potential factors that are not being offered through traditional treatment that maybe, your pediatrician is missing. That maybe your psychiatrist is missing. Guys, my pediatrician and my psychiatrist missed a lot of things. They can be wrong, and that's okay. All right. But the good news is, is I ran this information before I even shared this information or thought about sharing this information on a podcast. I ran this by a psychiatric nurse practitioner and a pediatrician, and both of them agreed that yes, this is important information. Yes, share this information. So there are plenty of medical practitioners who are on the same page and who have seen these contributing factors. So I'm not just not being me, you know, going off on traditional medicine and how wrong it is. No, absolutely not. I just know that with the research we have available now, we have to do new things. Otherwise, our teen girls will continue to fall through the rabbit hole of darkness. Sorry, that's my dog. I should not have had him in here during this episode. We're just going to hope that you don't hear every little noise that he's making. I'm going to say that again. If we do not start looking at these contributors, the root causes to teen depression, our teen girls will continue to fall through the rabbit hole of darkness. I'm going to give you seven contributors to teen depression that I experienced. And then I'm also going to give you a list of about nine other contributors that may might have played a role in my depression but maybe not so much but i definitely think that they can play a role in the depression that is occurring for a lot of kids these days the number one contributor to teen depression that was an aspect in my health mental health story is the oral birth control pill so i was prescribed this in eighth grade due to a heavy menstrual flow and anemia I was having a period about every two weeks. And of course I was experiencing some dizziness and lightness. And I remember, I remember it got so bad that I I was playing volleyball and I had to sit out of the game and just put my head between my hands because I was just so dizzy. So of course my mom took me to my pediatrician who then referred me to an OBGYN and I went in and I was prescribed the oral birth control pill. Well, within a year, I experienced debilitating depression, which is not uncommon according to the research. Now this, all this information that I'm going to share with you, let me do a quick side note. I am loading this up into my website. So if you want to see the research articles that I reference within, especially these contributors, I went through and loaded up on all the research that I could to support what I'm saying. And it is there and it's going to be hyperlinked in the article on adolescent depression. So what I have discovered through my functional medicine training through, I mean, years of studying on the topic of female hormones, the oral birth control pill depletes B6. B6 is crucial for creating serotonin, supporting mitochondrial function, which we need for energy, the methylation cycle, and maintaining the GABA glutamate balance. We need that for calm feelings. The pill also affects the gut microbiome. It can increase enhanced intestinal intestinal permeability, which a lot of people consider leaky gut. I'm putting that in air quotes. And because over 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut, this is another risk factor for depression. So follow my train of thought here. If the pill is depleting B6 and we need B6 to make serotonin, we also need tryptophan, but you can be getting all the tryptophan in the world. If you don't have enough B6, you're not going to make serotonin. And if the pill is also creating intestinal permeability and your gut isn't able to produce the serotonin that's needed for mental health, you're going to experience depression or anxiety or other mood altering effects. The pill also depletes magnesium, which ding, 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 ding. This is needed again for the GABA glutamate balance. This is needed for anti-anxiety feelings. This is needed for calm. This is needed for bowel regularity. So the pill can really take a major toll on mental health and whole body health. There are a myriad of nutrient depletions that occur from oral contraceptives. Again, I'm going to link that article explaining there's so many more other other nutrients that are depleted than just the ones that I'm mentioning. I'm just mentioning the big guys, the ones that are contributing to mood health. Because the pill depletes the very things that we need to counter hormonal issues and premenstrual stress to help us manage our premenstrual stress, it's no surprise that a further imbalance occurred in my body leading to depression symptoms. It's no surprise that this happens in many people, but specifically in the adolescent population at one point i read that it led to a 75% increase of depression in adolescents i have not been able to find that research again though which is driving me crazy but i found it once maybe one day i'll find it again so while for some people the birth control pill can be a very useful tool and i know you know back in the day when it was introduced it felt felt like it was a real gain and female empowerment for us to be able to be empowered to take control over our bodies. I really think that we need to take a second look at it and we have to ensure that there are enough nutrients available to make up for what is being depleted. You have a choice and if you're a parent with a daughter who is an adolescent female who's prescriber is suggesting the birth control pill you have a choice in what you want to do for your daughter and maybe you think that that's going to be a great great idea but please support the nutrient drain do something whether it's a multivitamin multimineral that you can take probiotics you know can be helpful too but be aware of what it's going to be causing and keep an eye out for the symptoms The second common contributor to depression that's going to be a little bit controversial. I love a little controversy on this show, right? Is antidepressants, SSRI specifically, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. This one might confuse you, right? Because like, aren't antidepressants supposed to help? Well, the latest studies that we have show that they only work about 30% of the time. That is not controversial. Any prescriber can find that information and is most likely aware of this information. They only work about 30% of the time. That means 70% of the people who are prescribed to them, they might not be feeling anything. But when you remove the placebo, it actually might be closer to 15%. So now we're talking about 15% benefit and 85% nothing. Well, in some cases, the use of these drugs are helpful. I'm not going to say that they're not helpful. They might be helpful to get somebody lifted out of the pit of depression for a little while in order to create some other baseline habits that can be useful and tools and go to counseling and maybe work on nutrition and all of that. So sometimes that can be helpful for other people. The drugs really can cause worsening depression. There is a black box warning on antidepressants for teens and one study in particular cited that the risks of increasing depression and suicidality might not even outweigh the benefits if there are any. And so that is definitely something, if you are a parent, if you are a family member of a teen who is being prescribed an SSRI and they keep getting worse and worse and worse, please take this study to their practitioner and make them aware of this. Because I I hate to think that something that we are trying to use to help our kids is actually making them worse. That breaks my heart as a parent and again, breaks my heart as somebody who struggled myself. The other factor here is we talked about B vitamins being building blocks for creating serotonin and making serotonin in the body. Well, antidepressants might actually create a further depletion of these B vitamins because of the demand on serotonin. And there are newer studies about antidepressants showing that they alter the gut microbiome. So now we've got some gut health issues at play, and if you have been on an antidepressant before and you've gone off, you might notice some bowel irregularity, or even when you get on them, you might notice some bowel changes. That's because they do affect the gut microbiome, and that research is, is new emerging research, and as far as um, even studies and weight gain and antidepressants, they're starting to wonder if maybe it is connected to the gut altering effects of of these drugs. So who knows? That's, that's yet to be seen. The other thing to consider when prescribing antidepressants for teenagers is that for anyone with a family history of bipolar disorder, keeping serotonin in the synapses of the brain for a little bit longer might actually lead to mania. And that's exactly what happened to me. We kept upping my SSRI thinking, oh man, I keep getting depressed. It's not really helping. So let's just up the dose. And I did experience hypomania and mania symptoms and was given the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. At that time, I don't know if we realized that there was a family history, but we see some puzzle pieces now going, oh yeah, that probably is a factor for certain family members. Remember, keep this in mind with antidepressants. This might be new information, but I want to make sure that you you really catch this. SSRIs don't actually give you serotonin. It's not giving you serotonin. What they're doing is they're taking the available serotonin that you have and inhibiting the reuptake of it in the brain so it's making it stick around for longer so you can have the serotonin available for a little bit longer. But the body in its wisdom, because our bodies are made to be so, so smart, it has a compensatory approach with this MAO inhibitor. And what will happen with this MAO inhibitor is that long-term it's going to start wiping out that excess serotonin because that's not supposed to be there. So long-term it's going to create serotonin depletion. So just like with the birth control pill, this might be a useful tool For some people in some circumstances but it's so important to be aware of any negative impact created and look for more tools in the toolbox to support healing serotonin may absolutely be a factor in depression it can be a contributing cause but currently our current treatment plan for females who are struggling with depression adolescent females is, well, let's put them on an SSRI and get them into counseling. This use of an SSRI might just be addressing one issue. But what if your child's depression has nothing to do with serotonin? What if it isn't a serotonin issue? We don't know for sure if, if, if it is or not. There's not really good testing to be like, yeah, you got serotonin, you don't have serotonin. So it's it's really just kind of taking a shot in the dark to see if it'll help. And with that shot in the dark, it could lead to some long-term effects. I was medicated for 18 years for various with various mood altering drugs and antipsychotics and um, antiepileptics and antidepressants and you name it 18 years of that and it really never treated the root of what was going on in my body. It might have helped a little bit in the short term. And I know it absolutely made me feel better to be taking those things. And there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with taking medication. But it wasn't necessarily addressing the root of what was going on with my body. It wasn't until I started looking at some other factors that I was really able to maintain mental stability for long term. I have been off of medication now for it'll be Gosh, it'll be 10 years in December that I will be off of my medication and I feel much better than I ever have before. And I don't recommend anybody ever going off of anything without going to your medical practitioner and working on a weaning plan because when you try to cold turkey hop off a med, it can lead to extremely awful, awful side effects. So don't do it. Don't have your kid do it. It's not worth it. I am just saying. If you're already on a medication, if your child's already on a medication, let's look for other things to help support stability. And then one day down the road, maybe you could look at weaning off. If that is right for you, if it's not right for you, that's okay too. So this is not a either or approach. This is a both and. I just want to help make you aware of what is in the research. All right, the number three contributing cause to adolescent depression that was definitely a factor in my depression is low self-worth and poor body image. Yes, I went to a counselor. I saw the counselor. I talked about my stuff. I talked about how much I didn't like myself, but I constantly was critiquing myself in the mirror Every time I went to the bathroom, I would get out, check my stomach. I still do it. It's like this thing that I just can't not do. It's this weird, I don't know, when I was pregnant, it made sense. It doesn't make sense anymore. Um, but it's, it's something that I developed during those early years of struggling with my body image. And I really have to check myself and, and make, you know, create awareness of what is actually going on with me. But I constantly compare myself to images in the mag, in magazines, any magazines, I was obsessed with magazines. So no, there wasn't social media. You know, we didn't have, I didn't have TikTok, didn't have Instagram, didn't have any of that. But I was obsessed with entertainment tonight. I was obsessed with People Magazine and anything that could tell me how to be skinny like the celebrities. I still remember, oh gosh, I was reading People Magazine. This was probably back in like 99 or 2000. I still remember when they shared Jennifer Lopez's weight and my jaw dropped because I thought, oh my gosh, I could never... I can never weigh that amount. How do I, how do I get to that point? I mean, I was obsessed with wanting to know how much celebrities weighed, what did they do to stay skinny? How could I be like that? That negative self-talk was toxic for my body and that chronic stress actually does have a physical impact on our body. Did you know that it can lead to low secretory IgA? At the intestinal barrier level. And what that does is that leads to tissue damage. That can open me up to all sorts of poor immune function. And that's exactly what happened. And that leads to number four that poor immune function that I struggled with my whole life, maybe because of my toxic thinking, my negativity, my comparison, all of that. It is antibiotics. Antibiotics are a major trigger for mood issues. For me personally, I constantly took antibiotics for any little thing from the time I was a baby to pre-adolescence. And I even have journal entries from fifth grade after I had experienced trauma. I, I write down how often I'm sick from school. It's like, well, I'm homesick again. My, my throat is hurting. My stomach is hurting. I'm, I went to the doctor and they gave me some medicine. And by the time I was in college, I experienced chronic tonsillitis and I was diagnosed with mononucleosis what's interesting is I was diagnosed with mono at the same time I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Thanks to what we know about psychoneuroimmunology, we know that there's a connection there. And there's, it's no coincidence that I came down with my first manic episode when I came down with mono. However, throughout that, I received more antibiotics, which led to worsening gut health, which led to more medication changes. And my body and brain continued to suffer antibiotics, like these other things are not bad tools. Man, antibiotics were a life-saving treatment of the 20th century that we are so grateful for. I am so grateful for antibiotics. The problem with antibiotics today is that we are seeing a lot of antibiotic-resistant bacteria coming up because of the overuse. Not only are we getting antibiotics for any old sinus infection or cough or sneeze or whatever. We're also getting antibiotics preemptively. Like if you go to the dentist and you get dental work, it's like, Hey, let me prescribe you an antibiotic just in case you get an infection. Like just in case you don't even really have one, but just in case let's do an antibiotic. And let's remember that a lot of our antibiotics are in the food that we consume, especially animal products. Animals are given antibiotics to fatten them up which is great, like you you get more bang for your buck, I guess. But what does that say for us and what we're consuming when we consume them after they've consumed the antibiotics? So antibiotics are just something that you really want to be judicious about. And there are all sorts of good questions that you can ask your practitioner when you're prescribing an antibiotic. Like, what is this exactly for? Do I have a bacterial infection? What do you anticipate to be the outcome of me taking this antibiotic? Do you believe that it's absolutely necessary or is there an alternative that we can use? I have found that there are quite a few alternatives to antibiotics in a lot of situations. And so it's just one, one other area where you wanna be your own health advocate, as I always say. All right, so the number five, Contributing factor to my depression is unresolved trauma. One area of mental health that has improved since the 1990s, I will say that, that is trauma therapy. Now that I understand polyvagal theory, I can see that during my depressive episodes, I was in what we would call a dorsal vagal state or freeze mode is another word for it for a very long time. So what this looked like for me is that there were days that I couldn't get out of bed. I had low energy fatigue. I would also dissociate when situations were overwhelming. I would just my brain would just check out. I still do that. And I catch myself on it. It's really weird. Um, Now that I'm aware of it, my friends called it um, Aaron land, I would just go off to Aaron land, especially if there's a lot going on and lots of people talking at once. And like, it's exciting. And all the good energy was great. But I was so drained that I couldn't handle very much for too long. And so I I would feel completely overwhelmed by everything. so while talk therapy can be helpful in the short term, talk therapy did not address my trauma. A therapy such as EMDR which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That is a tool that could have been much more helpful for me at the time, or even a tool like tapping, EFT, emotional freedom technique, or yoga could have been extremely impactful to bring me back to my body. What I find ironic is that back then when I would try to do something like yoga or slowing down or deep breathing, I just couldn't do it. So even if I was in a freeze state of complete tapped out, no energy, my body was so used, to running on stress chemicals that doing a movement that was slow did not feel helpful for me and so that that's kind of a cool check-in i think another little side note here for for you if you struggle to do something like yoga or to slow down in movement or if it really bothers you that could be a sign that your life is running on stress hormones and you need to make some space to give your body some healing because your body is just in this upregulated state all the time it's a good indicator that's the rabbit trail. Number six. Oh, this is a tough one. All right. So an insatiable desire for overly processed foods. This one hits hard because of my depression. I gravitated toward food that made me feel good. I craved hyper palatable processed foods that were designed to play on my neurotransmitter response and hook my brain this wasn't a failure of willpower on my part like I thought my brain was actually doing exactly what the food companies were banking on my brain doing wheat and dairy are probably the most suspicious of these items because they play upon the opiate receptors in the body and and in the brain they have a drug-like addictive quality wheat contains the compound gluteomorphin and dairy has casomorphin so if you hear that word morphine in there you're right there is something that can have an addictive effect on those things. And I know there are a lot of people out there who are into intuitive eating and health at every size. And I think that those movements are can be extremely helpful for some. And especially if we're talking about recovering from an eating disorder, we don't want to moralize food and we don't want to demonize food. That is really problematic, but we want to be aware of what these overly processed foods are doing at the brain level. They have been chemically altered. They have, these companies have paid lots of money to do all these special testings so that their food can hit the bliss point if you want to know a little bit more about that you can go back to my episode with dr jo- joan ifland she breaks down in a really great way what these foods are actually doing to the brain at the brain level and then dr nicole avena i think is how you say her name a-v-e-n-a remember, Avina, Avina. Anyway, she is a neuroscientist who are or a um, neuroscience researcher who really breaks down the way that sugar impacts our brain. And that episode was in December of 2022. So you can check back on that one too, but these foods play a role in how our brain functions. So you have to be aware that if you are constantly craving these overly processed foods, like if your kid wants to eat nothing but Chick-fil-A, there's a reason for that. Do you know how much MSG is in chicken nuggets? Oh my goodness. If I have one chicken nugget, I need 20 because one is not enough. Eight is not enough. I need more. And it feels like something has been completely hijacked in my brain when I eat foods like that. Now I can be aware of that. And I can avoid it. But when I was younger, I didn't know. I just knew that I felt better. And that's what I wanted is I wanted to feel better. And that was what food was giving me. I mean, donuts were a huge one for me. I love donuts. I could eat I could eat them endlessly and never feel full. Not that donuts are supposed to make you feel full, but I just wanted more. So that's something to be aware of. The seventh thing that I'm going to really go into detail about the rest of the things I'm going to list out just for the sake of time, but the seventh thing that is a major contributor to adolescent depression is exercise or lack of exercise so for me I played sports every year until fall of my senior year of high school and that's actually when my depression hit a really bad low and I experienced isolation self-perpetuated isolation like i I did not want to be around people Uh, to the point where I would, I would turn down social activities to stay home and read because I just could not deal with people and the overwhelm of social activities. So when swim team started in the second semester of my senior year of high school, my mood improved. So there's definitely a connection for me with my mood and exercise. And I am grateful for the opportunity to play sports for most of my adolescence, because I think that had I not, it it could have been a lot worse. So in my, just in my opinion, based on the research that I've done and my own personal experience, I think that exercise continues to be the most powerful antidepressant that we have studies for to this day exercise movement, whether it's taking a walk or it does not have to be running, it doesn't have to be high impact, but just some kind of movement, it really helps to I mean, one way that I love it is that it helps to improve brain derived neurotrophic factor BDNF. And that is kind of like miracle growth for your brain, it's going to help your brain create stronger connections, it's going it's it helps with a lot of things. All right, so I'm now just going to list off some things to consider that must be examined in regards to adolescent depression. And these are some things that maybe, you know, just should be asked if you have a child that is experiencing depression. These are some check-ins for yourself, for your family, for everybody. But the number one thing that I would, I would share is that how much sleep is happening is there too much sleep? Because that's a, you know, definitely a trigger. And that's a sign that things aren't good. But or is there not enough sleep? Is it inconsistent sleep? Inconsistent sleep schedules and a circadian rhythm that is all out of whack, that can wreak havoc on mood health. And so creating space for good sleep hygiene, a good wind down routine, a good consistent bedtime routine, and a wake up routine and a morning routine, all that can be really helpful. The other question to ask is, is there thyroid dysfunction? This is super common. It's kind of i feel like it's a growing epidemic right now but this would be where you would really want to get some good detailed thyroid labs beyond just the tsh tsh is great but it's it's not going to give the full picture of the story you want to look at t4 t3 reverse t3 thyroid antibodies there are a lot of things you want to look at there Going to a functional medicine doctor, um, integrative medicine physician is probably going to be the best way to go for that. But that's something to look at along with thyroid dysfunction. Is there an autoimmune dynamic at play? Is there something else that is going on? Is, Is there celiac? Is there something else that is impacting the brain level because of an autoimmune disease at play? Is there a food sensitivity? Food sensitivities can contribute to leaky gut, which leads to inflammation, which can lead to an imbalanced nervous system and results in depression, anxiety. And some of the research that I have seen shows that food sensitivities can actually create kind of a cortisol response in the body, a stress response, because if you're constantly eating something that your body is sensitive to, then your body's gonna mount an attack. So that is something to be aware of. Is there a specific food? I know for one of my kids, red dye is a big issue for that kid. And so even if he has a little bit of it a little bit I like to say to clients your body doesn't know the difference between a bowl of it or a bite of it your body's going to respond the same way so that's something to look at the other thing this one of course is going to be really important in this day and age what is the use of screen time like we know that screens after dark when it's dark outside the blue light from screens can block melatonin from being produced in the body to help us to sleep and we need that. So what is the screen time after dark like? Are they staying up all night on their phones? Um, Or or do you have a place where you're, they're turning in their phone at night? I think that that can be really helpful. Our daughter, I mean, she was 18 and she was still turning in her phone at night. And we said, you know, (laughs) you probably don't need to do that anymore. But I I don't know what her screen time is like now that she's older and I have lightened the reins a little bit while your child is at home and younger keep track of that and make sure that their face is not always in a screen. It's extremely disorienting for the brain. And it is definitely, we have lots of studies that it's linked to anxiety, depression, and all sorts of mental disorders like that. The other question, is there loneliness and social isolation at play? Loneliness is has shown to be more harmful than smoking cigarettes. So this has to be examined. Even if they're on their phone all the time, they can still be lonely, right? Like I get that I can communicate with my friends all day long on Facebook and on Instagram, but it is no substitute for in-person interaction. A question that I often ask my female clients that are, that are my, my teen female clients is who, who are your friends? Who, who's in your circle? And if they tell me that maybe they just have one good friend. That's a red flag for me. That is a sign that I want to be looking out for their mood health because that can be really lonely especially at that time of life to just to not have any good deep friendships. The other question that goes along with that is what is the parent child relationship like? What is the parents mental health and stress management like? Thanks to the science of interpersonal neurobiology, we know that when parents experience untreated depression, anxiety, trauma, poor self-esteem, or lack of self-regulating skills, it absolutely has a negative impact on children's mental health. So this is a good check-in for us as parents. How are we managing our stress? How are we managing our anxiety and our depression and dealing with our own trauma? Because if I am dysregulated and in a constant state of dysregulation, my child via mirror neurons will pick up on that. And this is just a good check-in to that effect. The other question, is there any time in nature? What are vitamin D levels like? We make vitamin D from the sun. Vitamin D is actually more of a hormone than a vitamin. And that's why even supplementing with vitamin D can be a tricky game to play. And I'm not like a huge fan of it just because you really need magnesium to convert vitamin D to its final form. Too much vitamin D will lead to a depletion depletion in vitamin A. But I do believe that everybody needs some good time in the sun. And if your child is not outside playing like, I mean, I don't know how many 14-year-old girls are like outside riding their bikes. I don't see them doing it. If yours is, that's amazing. But they don't have recess either. So they probably are not getting any nature time, any sunshine in order to make the vitamin D that they need. That's something to consider. And nature therapy is huge. The last question to ask that I think would be helpful is what other nutrient deficiencies are at play? Is your child getting enough protein that is being consumed for neurotransmitter support? Different amino acids will convert to different neurotransmitters. So like tryptophan will convert serotonin, of course, with the presence of B vitamins and some other things, but dopamine we get from tyrosine. And so we've got to have enough protein for that. And I know many teen girls, you know, go through this like, well, I'm not really hungry or I'm gonna be a vegan or, okay. That's cool, but what protein are you getting to support your brain? And in a world of convenience and fast food, is your child even getting enough bioavailable vitamins or minerals and omega-3 fatty acids to support brain health? If I could recommend anything for brain health support for a teen girl, I would recommend magnesium particularly magnesium glycinate because that's really impactful for sleep and anxiety. That would be my number one. My number two would be omega-3. Get your kid on an omega-3. My number three would be a probiotic. Now, that is just a blanket statement in general. For different situations, I might recommend different things. Definitely, I would say, magnesium, omega-3, and probiotics are going to hit a lot of the boxes that we want to check for mental health. The other thing that can be helpful and supportive, and that would be where I would recommend a parent scheduling your child to have a consultation with me, we could talk about using specific and targeted amino acids for mental health. So you could use tryptophan to support serotonin or 5-HTP also is an option there, or you could try some GABA for some calming and relaxation feelings to help support anxiety. Those are things that I work with with teens a lot but I'm really particular about what kinds and how much and when to do it so that would be where you would want to schedule a consultation and um, we could we could chat about that. As a parent I will turn over every stone to get to the root of my child's health issues and thanks to a functional medicine approach at healing we reverse chronic disease twice in my family once with me and another time with my youngest child so finding a practitioner trained in integrative medicine gave us many more tools in the toolbox that promoted healing and a lot of my training and a lot of the things that i do with my clients come from our integrative medicine Pediatrician, and she is a huge source of help. She's the person I consulted for this article and that turned into a podcast. So I think it's really important to keep digging. If you're a parent, I encourage you to take this list, these resources, and have an open heart to heart with your child's pediatrician. If that pediatrician is unwilling to turn over every stone with you and examine all the available research, then it is time to find someone who will advocate for your child with you. That person exists. I promise they are out there. But I have been laughed at by a pediatrician before until I, that was before I learned how to do my research. And of course, after I've done my research, I have seen that they laughed at me because they didn't know. They hadn't seen the research. We have this idea that these medical doctors are the end all be all and they know everything. But guys, it's a big world out there when it comes to physical body health and mental health there's no way to know everything there's no way to know about every study that's out there and there's no way to know exactly what is right for your kid's body and how different it is from another kid's body unless you are willing to really do the hard work and start digging and there are people out there that are willing to do it if you're looking for a really good pediatrician recommendation let me know. I've got some. And um, I I just, I feel so passionate about this one because I have been medically gaslit before by pediatricians and I will not do it again. It's not going to happen. All right. If you are a medical professional or a pediatrician or a nurse practitioner, or in that realm, and you're listening to this, I urge you, fight for these girls. Leave no stone unturned. If that means thinking outside the box and digging into unfamiliar research and questioning what you've been told, do it. If it means asking more questions when you don't get the answers that you want to get, do it. If it means outsourcing support from a trauma therapist, from a health coach or a nutritionist, or finding someone trained in functional medicine to help you understand the root cause dynamics that are at play in this child's body. Do it. Find someone who will partner with you for the benefit of your patients, who you work so hard for and you care so deeply about. These girls are worth it. They need all the support we can give them. (sighs) Okay. I'll take a deep breath because I am fired up because I care so much about this. We simply cannot keep repeating the cycle of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. The treatment options of the 1990s have no place in 2023. They don't. We must do better. As a mother, as a survivor, as a health coach, as a chronic researcher, I refuse to accept the way things are. Our daughters deserve better. With that, I'm going to end this episode. If you are interested in the research and the, what i put together for this i am posting a shorter version of this episode on my blog you can scan through that you can get the hyperlinks if you are interested in getting in any kind of referrals or recommendations for pediatrics um for psychiatry any of that let me know there are people out there who will fight for your kid and who will fight for you because this applies to all of us we all need to do everything that we can to fight for our mental health it's important. Mm-hmm.